You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about business and innovation. This session was originally broadcast on December 8th, 2021. Let's have a listen. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of uh, Q&A about business, innovation, and managing life. And I see all kinds of questions that have come in here. All sorts of interesting things. Let me see how I can get along with this. All right, we have a question here from David asking, have we ever done any research and or deals connected with household personal robots? Uh, mentioning one called Astro, which I have to admit I've never heard of. Um, well, we've obviously done things with personal assistants and, uh, uh, you know, things like Alexa and, and, and so on. Um, and we've also, well, okay, let's talk a little bit about home automation and home robots. You know, I have to say that home automation is one of these industries where it almost happened so long ago and everybody said it's going to be the next big thing and it wasn't and then it really wasn't. It wasn't for decades. I think one of the issues with home automation is that it's one of these things where distribution channels really matter, and many kinds of sort of home automation require that you have a serious installation effort to actually install the whatever it is, you know, the new door lock mechanism or the new whatever it is. Um, and uh, the um, uh, that's um, uh, um, that's something where um, the it's that's a big sort of uh, speed bump on any kind of distribution channel um, that you have to kind of have the installers in the loop. And so maybe that's a reason why a lot of these things didn't happen. I think that uh, when it comes to sort of the robots, clearly iRobot and the Roomba and so on, that's been a very successful business um, that is a place where real robots have showed up. Same with, for some reason, you know, one had these visions when I was a kid, there were always these visions of robots walking around like people and so on. And then the actual robots that actually arise are these very floor dwelling creatures, whether it's uh, the, the, you know, the, 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 um, the Roombas or whether it's the Kiva, you know, robots that Amazon now owns that are the, these factory robots that move things around and go around on the floor, or whether it's now some of these delivery robots that are like low to the ground dog-like things. Um, the, uh, you know, I'm not sure what the, uh, oh yeah, you're asking about, um, I mean, we've definitely, there are definitely a bunch of toy-like robot things that have Wolfram Alpha APIs in them, uh, where you can ask your pet dinosaur questions about astronomy and things like this. Um, you know, the whole question about whether you can set something up to, uh, you know, what, what the right sort of plugging into kind of a, a home robot thing is, is not clear. So for example, one thing that's definitely a thing you can imagine is you've got your home robot wandering around your house, interacting with your pets or whatever all day. And then uh, you come back and you want to ask it, or you're even remotely, you want to ask it all kinds of questions. You know, did you see the dog, you know, jump on this chair at any time today? And you know you could imagine using, for example, our natural language understanding stack together with 
sort of the background knowledge, not just from our sort of public knowledge, but also from the knowledge accumulated by the home robot in the course of its day to be able to answer interesting questions. And yes, we have had discussions with, with companies about the possibility of doing something like that. Um, I, I don't think uh, there may be startups that have tried to do that. I don't think any of the, the, the sort of big companies we've, we've done that with at this point, but it's something one could certainly imagine um, being possible. And it's something where you can imagine pretty interesting kind of uh, whether it's uh, sort of voice to voice type type results or whether it's um, uh, visualization type things of this is what, uh, you know, this is the analytics, this is what we found. We, we have all kinds of things in Wolfram language for doing things like audio identify. What was that sound? Um, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, was it a barking dog? Was it, was it a, um, um, I don't know what other kinds of things happen. Um, that type of thing. But uh, it's a funny market. I, I don't really understand this market. Um, you know, it's something that even from the oh, uh, late 80s, early 90s, was kind of home automation is the thing. Everything's going to, you know, it's, it's all going to be exciting. I remember um, uh, in the sometime in the late 90s, we were building this house and um, uh, it was sort of the question of what kind of home automation could we get um, uh, my friend Steve Kirsch had made a wonderful video about home automation at the house that he built that showed all the terrible things that could go wrong with kind of not home automation that didn't quite work right, of um, things that were motion sensors that sensed motion that was already something that was already moving and it just all very confused and so on. I think the one thing we did when we built this house is um, to put empty conduit in the walls on the grounds that uh, at the time people were always saying, oh, you should future-proof your house by running, you know, Cat5 cable and Cat6 cable. And oh, well, they hadn't yet quite heard of fiber at that time. Um, and uh, the, the, the one innovation is just have empty conduit in the walls. So whatever you need to pull through it at some time in the future, you can. Although a lot of stuff is wireless, but not everything is wireless. And, and certainly my faster computers don't use wireless communication and so on. Um, so it's uh, it's a funny market, this home automation market. And I don't know, uh, it's one of these things where maybe eventually it will be fully, it will take off in a way that can plug into kind of general purpose computational things, but I don't think that's really happened yet. I mean, another thing is both I've got, and I'm sure lots of people have, using Raspberry Pis, for example, as little, um, you know, things that control little pieces of one's, one's sort of home infrastructure, so to speak. And Wolfram Language is bundled with Raspberry Pis operating system. Um, and so that's a thing that, that becomes easy to, to use there. We have pretty good support for the various kinds of sensors and devices and actuators and things you can connect to Raspberry Pis. Well, let's see. Uh, another question here from Urbans. Question about personal logging data. Have I identified any low-hanging fruit that could be broadly useful for managing life? Have I done machine learning on the data that I have? Um, you know, I've there are lots of kinds of things that I find in terms of personal analytics data, there are a few things that I find useful all the time. So for example, uh, I get email every day that tells me, you know, how many steps did I walk? How many keystrokes did I type? Those kinds of things. You know, what was my heart rate the last day? Those, those types of things. And for some reason, I find it a very useful piece of feedback to just sort of help 
keep myself on track that, yeah, you know, I had a productive day. I typed 60,000 keystrokes, you know, my resting heart rate is down and, you know, it's sort of, it's all good versus, well, I had a lousy day and I typed only 10,000 keystrokes and um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's, it's useful for me to have that piece of feedback. I also have information about, um, uh, well, I, I have lots of other things that kind of help, um, uh, help me kind of sort of see what's happened uh, uh, in, in my life over the past day. And I find those a useful way to sort of keep on track. Uh, other things that I found useful, for example, when I get external email, um, I have something which searches for that sender in previous emails that I've received and so on. That's also something very useful in helping me kind of remember what's what's happened in the past and so on. And, and I have a thing for, for searching. I have a pretty good search system for the last 30 years of material um, and so on and on all the various files and paper documents that I have. So that's a that's a thing that's been very useful. In terms of of uh, sort of doing machine learning and, and trying to learn things, global things about myself. I really, it's, it's about time that I did another analysis of, of that, of uh, when I last did it, it's probably 10 years ago now, um, I you know, discovered how habitual I was in you know, very precise times. I, I, you know, I think of myself as being sort of, I just do the things that I, that I want to do at any given time. But when I actually look at it, it's like I work for some period of 90 minutes and then I get up and I pace around and it's always that amount of time or I go to sleep at a very fixed time, even though I think I'm just keeping on going until, um, until I'm tired type thing. And it's, it's, it's more habitual than I ever expected. Now, occasionally I'll have a question that I want to answer where I can just dive into the data that I've collected and try and answer the question, whether it's, you know, I replaced my keyboard. Am I typing faster or slower on it? or whether it's the one that I, I really need to finish doing the study, actually. I, I was trying to figure out what makes me get sick. And I found from 25 years of data, I found 17 times when I got sick. I, I think the actual number is a little bit larger than that. I think it's maybe three or four times larger than that. And then I have all my calendar data and I have uh, all my ambient heart rate data, at least for recent years, and my steps data and so on. And I was just trying to correlate all those things to try and answer the question, you know, what uh, sort of as, as, as the world opens back up again, it's like, where should I really be very concerned about whether I'm going to get sick? And one of my early conclusions was plane flights are definitely bad. And I was like getting sick two days after plane flights rather often. Um, and so I, I, um, I just went on a trip recently and I was like, uh, um, you know, take those things that stimulate your immune system, vitamin A and things like that. And uh, I don't know, I didn't get sick from that last, my N of one was I didn't get sick from that last trip, but it wasn't a very long plane flight. Um, so uh, those, are, those are kinds of things that, that I'm interested in there. There are uh, all sorts of studies. Again, what I tend to do is there are things which are kind of repeated, kind of reminding myself of what's going on in my life, which I find quite useful quite helpful for another thing that I have is a display that shows uh, the a time series of pending email that I have and that I find useful. I, I, I find it satisfying when I see the curve really go down. Um, I see kind of a, it gives me some sense of, of how I'm managing things to see how, how terrible the curve has gone up and how long it's been going up and, and so on. Um, I, I find those kinds of things useful for kind of uh, continual, sort of the, the continual control system, so to speak, helping me keep on track. Um, and I think that the, uh, 
and then and then the other thing I find useful is when I have a specific question, then being able to dive into the data that I have and and see what I can get. You know, in terms of machine learning, I have tried a bunch of machine learning things on my on my data. Um, I would say that they have not been. I'm trying to remember whether any have been dramatically successful. I did one looking at sentiment analysis in the course of the year to try and find out if there was sort of seasonal or other variation of my general mood. And I found absolutely nothing, uh, possibly just because I'm not particularly, you know, uh, don't go up and down too much, um, but uh, possibly because the sentiment analysis wasn't really a good measure, possibly because it's not well reflected in my email and things like this. Um, but that was one example. I mean, I were a few other kind of uh, things, whimsical things. One of the things I've been meaning to do is find out when I, if I look at words in the English dictionary, and I look at when did I, um, uh, when did I first um, use particular words? I'm just curious about that. I know I did a study at one point of when I've invented words. Um, when was the actual moment when I first used those words? And, and similarly for orphan language function names. I also had a thing for, I, I, I do this still, uh, you know, I um, uh, at various times people have said, particularly my, I think my oldest son was probably the originator of this particular one of, of, uh, of uh, you know, when do you ever run into a word you don't know how to spell? And I said, well, I, you know, I'm a reasonable speller, but I, I do run into words I don't know how to spell. So I started sending email, I think, I, uh, to um, every time there's a, a word that I don't know how to spell, I'll, I'll send a, an email about that. Uh, sort of, I think, I think the recipients have gotten rather fed up with receiving those, although they don't happen very often. But for me, that's actually a useful mechanism because, uh, gosh, it's, um, um, you know, at least I have to type the word out. I insist I type the word out. I don't, uh, I don't just copy paste it. And that way it gives me a better chance to, to actually remember how to spell it. Um, and uh, uh, I think I, uh, the, the, the only thing, the other thing that sort of amuses me is that it's these weird words that it's, you just see the word without any context. There's a little bit of curiosity on the part of the recipient about why on earth was I using this word? Um, but in any case, that, that's just a, a fun kind of thing. Um, let's see. Okay, more, more questions here. Um, I, by the way, on, on the subject of machine learning and, and personal analytics data, there are clearly many things that can be done in general. I mean, there are many things that are useful for, for example, mental health purposes. I haven't particularly been, been interested in those for myself, but there are things that you can, a lot of stuff you can tell about that from sort of global machine learning kinds of measurements on, um, on this kind of data. Um, there's also, uh, I suspect, things you can tell, well, there's medical kinds of things you can tell. Um, there are some kind of productivity things you can tell. I mean, I, I, I don't think it's really a machine learning question, um, but uh, I do know that it, the increase and decrease of amounts of emails sent to different people uh, reflect kind of my sort of changing relationships or changing reliance on those people and so on. And that's something that is interesting, although I have to say I've looked at that only sort of rather episodically. Okay, a question here from Aaron. When did I realize that I could do science for a living? Did I ever expect that I'd do something else? Well, personally, I, I kind of got interested in physics when I was like 11 or 12 years old. And I kind of had this goal, I want to be a physicist when I'm grown up. That was 
back in 1972 or something when being a physicist was still cool, so to speak. But um, that was that had been my goal. And the interesting thing that happened was by the by 1979, by the time I was like 20, I was a physicist. You know, I had a PhD, I had a job being a physicist. Um, and in a sense, that was great because it's like I'd had this goal. That was my, you know, when I'm grown up, I want to be a physicist. And I got to that goal pretty early. And that meant that I kind of could see, okay, well, I could just do this for the rest of my life. Or, well, I'm interested in this other thing and this other thing and this other thing. But so I was never really under any, I always, you know, I knew you could be a physicist for a living. And I decided that was what I wanted to do. And at least at, at step one, that was what I ended up being able to do. Um, I, I haven't been a, a, quote, scientist for a living in both 34 years now. Um, you know, I've been a tech CEO for a living. Um, and uh, I haven't, um, uh, the fact that I've now been doing a lot of physics again is, is fun and interesting, but it's not what I've been doing for a living, so to speak. Uh, it kind of gives me a considerable amount of freedom in the, in the types of things I can do in science that I don't do it for a living. I'm not part of the kind of the, the academic system. I have many friends who are academics. We have many academics who are great customers of ours, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm not in that particular world. And it's not like, how many papers did you publish this year? Nobody's, uh, uh, nobody's really asking that question. You know, did, did you get um, this, uh, do you, did you write this proposal for this grant? That's not something that I'm in the middle of doing. Um, and uh, so it, it gives me the opportunity to do, for example, science that, uh, uh, you know, if I were to write a proposal for, I'm going to find the fundamental theory of physics, I could spend my whole life waiting for somebody to say, oh, yeah, I really believe you, I'm going to fund that, but I haven't needed to do that. And that's a really good thing in terms of being able to do innovative things in science, is being able to have that kind of freedom to just uh, take the risks one wants to take, so to speak, without asking other people for for permission to do it. And I, I think it's a, it's one of these things that has become a a surprising feature of the world. I think I've mentioned this in some other live streams. Sort of the very size of science that you might think was a big advantage is actually a disadvantage because it means it's full of kind of institutional structure that tends to have considerable inertia when it comes to to doing new things. And it's it's great to be not part of that system and able to just do the science that I want to do and, and so on. Um, question from Philip. Are people the world over losing confidence in fiat money and governments in general? You know, I have to say, before this pandemic, I was thinking people, are, you know, governments are old news. Nobody, nobody pays attention to governments anymore. And then this pandemic happened and suddenly it was like, the government is telling us to do this. The government is having to take this action and so on. I think for government folk, you know, in a sense, this pandemic, and I think perhaps it's been overplayed in some ways, has been the great, you know, governments matter type story. As I said, I think it's been a bit overplayed in, 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 in quite a number of cases, but that seems to be a, a, um, a feature there. I think that um, the question of... of it's sort of been a funny thing. What, what, uh, you know, to what extent is the world sort of this whole multinational thing where countries and governments don't matter anymore? To what extent is it really something where, uh, where they do matter? I think these are complicated issues. I tend to think that the idea that we have sort of the, the one world 
kind of everything is 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 global is a very fragile and dangerous situation to be in because whenever there's just one of something it's uh, you're kind of asking for trouble and i think it's sort of a good thing that there are 200 countries in the world with somewhat different preferences and in the us you know uh, 50 states or whatever that do have slightly do slightly different things to me that's sort of a a good feature i mean i suppose that um, uh, you know, I, I would, if you say, well, if we pick the one thing that everybody's going to do, what's that one thing going to be? Well, maybe we can't all agree on it. Maybe we don't know what that one thing should be. I tend to think both for reasons of, of common sense and reasons of science that the pick the one right answer is uh, for these kinds of societal things is something that is sort of doomed to failure. It's, it's never going to work. Even it's a sort of even a self-fulfilling thing. Once you have the one thing then sort of society will adapt and game around that and that one thing will no longer work. And so I think we're kind of lucky to have a situation where there isn't just the one thing, so to speak. Uh, you can, I think, um, as far as um, uh, currencies and so on are concerned, well, you know, I see the present time with all of the stimuli that have been used for, uh, to sort of control the economy through this pandemic, you know, this is, as far as I'm concerned, the 100-year test of economic theory. I mean, at times in the past, whether it's the 1920s, 1930s, things like that, or at times in the more distant past, things went horribly wrong with economies. Things And people say, oh, but that won't happen again because we understand economics better now. Well, this is the test. And uh, so far, it's not going horribly. Um, you know, it's there hasn't been, you know, dramatic, horrifying inflation. There hasn't been... Uh, uh, there haven't been other kinds of disasters. Uh, let's hope there aren't. Um, as I say, I think it's a sort of the 100-year test of economic theory and the, the, the sort of the test of whether the levers that exist in central banks and things like this uh, and in policies and so on are sufficient to kind of keep the economy roughly humming along. And, and you know, I, I, I've studied quite a bit the sort of the science of economics. I, I haven't been doing that in the last couple of months. I sort of got sidetracked onto other things. But um, I think that some of the kind of formalism that we developed from our physics project has a bunch of things to say about economics. And um, uh, I think that that's a, um, a place that, um, that slightly informs my thinking about these kinds of things. I mean, I think one of, the, one of the big questions is the concept of money to begin with is something which is money is useful because it's this uniform standard of value that allows you to sort of uh, to say this good versus that good, how much is it worth? Of course, in a world where everything is run by you know, AI bots all the way down, you could imagine that the person who wants to buy an apple from somebody who's, you know, in, in, uh, who, and who wants to you know, buy an apple, sell an orange type thing, that in principle, there could be some chain of bots that would find some way, you know, go from an apple to a pear, to a banana, to a this, to a that, to the other, and eventually you get to the orange. And you could have this chain of transactions where everything is kind of a barter transaction or everything is, a, is potentially a kind of a, um, an option to a barter transaction or whatever else, some very complicated thing where you never really have to talk about money in the middle of that. Money is essentially a convenient way. It's a sort of convenient scheme for, in a sense, caching the concept of value. And it's something which has been super useful in the history of, of human civilization. It's not completely obvious that 
in the sort of computational AI-ish world of the future, it's completely the, the same kind of thing as it, as, it, as it has been in the past. And that might play itself out in the more near term as, you know, as things sort of fragment and different things have inflation and don't and things cost different amounts and people want to do different kinds of things. I'm not sure how that's going to work out. And I think that the, um, the question of, uh, well, the question of sort of cryptocurrencies versus, versus uh, fiat currency and so on and how that plays out you know, the big issue is, are people really going to start using cryptocurrency as the standard of value for buying barrels of oil and things like that? And to some extent, they are. And I think that's, you know, the big questions I not to sort of segue into too much because it's not really my area of kind of the geopolitics of things of, you know, what becomes the reserve currency of the world, particularly if it isn't solidly dollars, and does that become some kind of cryptocurrency? That's obviously a very important question, and um, the uh, and that will I think determine the relative importance of these of these kinds of things. Let's see. There's a question here from Finn. What do I do to keep up my energy? Uh, what kind of supplements, omega threes, all these kinds of things, do I take? I'm 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 not very serious about those kinds of things. I, uh, a good friend of mine who's a medical researcher told me I must have been 40 years ago now. She said, you should take, uh, you know, CoQ10 and you should take fish oil and you take this. And I, and I just put that in my little pack of things I take every morning and I haven't really paid attention to what it is. I, I wouldn't be able to tell you how much of it it is or anything. I've just been doing it for decades. Um, and uh, hopefully it's been doing me some good. Uh, it's certainly become over the period since my friend first suggested it. And now these things have become much more popular. Um, I think that... Uh, I tend to, um, you know, I tend to not eat things that um, uh, I'm not. I'm not obsessive in any way about that, but I tend to have sort of chosen to eat things that aren't horribly full of of nasty things that make me feel terrible, so to speak. I think the thing for me, in terms of of uh, you know, I do tend to try to sleep the the sort of the uh, well, I I head for eight hours, although I never get that. Um, I tend to, um, it's perhaps a sign of the habitualness of my life, or alternatively, the, um, uh, the obnoxiousness of being a CEO or something that I essentially never use an alarm clock. Um, and I always seem to wake up at more or less the right time. But it also means that um, that doesn't have, uh, uh, I don't know whether that helps or, or, or whatever. I also tend to have this sort of thing that count up timer that says how long I've been asleep. I find that rather useful. Um, but uh, so, you know, sleeping, I find to be a good thing. And um, I think as I've gotten older, I found it easier to every few weeks, I'll take a nap for some amount of time, some, some time in the middle of a day. And it's usually a very short nap, but I find that that's, that's very useful for increasing energy. If I'm, if I'm tired enough to actually successfully take a nap, I needed the nap. And then that increases my energy a lot. Um, I think the thing that is most important for maintaining energy is doing things that you want to do. And uh, I've, I've found that that's, uh, you know, that's, that's the number one thing for me is that I try and make sure that the things I'm doing are things that I want to do. Um, I would say that the, if I have a, a thing that, um, uh, you know, I, I can be a bit of a procrastinator sometimes. But I think I'm sometimes a rational procrastinator in the following sense. 
that there are things where it's like, well, you should prepare for this talk you're giving, or well, you should prepare for this thing you're doing, or whatever. And I, I'll tend to put that off until kind of the last minute. And I found that actually that's a pretty good strategy because so long as I have a reasonable idea how long it's going to take me, oh, this is going to take me half an hour, it's going to take me an hour, whatever else. And I, and I seem to have developed a, a reasonable sense of that for most kinds of things. It's much better if I'm like preparing to do something, if I prepare a small amount of time beforehand, because then I remember what I prepared. I'm kind of in the same mood as when I was preparing. I kind of, uh, it's something which I can can do do when ready, so to speak. And if I do it, I, some of the, the the sort of worst presentations I've ever given are things where I prepared it, you know, a week in advance. And I'm like, by the time I'm actually doing it, I've forgotten completely what I prepared. And I sort of see the audience, if it's one of those kinds of things, it's like, oh my gosh, this is not the, uh, you know, the thing I prepare. Well, I'm going to follow through and do that, even though I can tell it's completely the wrong thing, because after all, I spent all this time preparing it. I think also this applies sometimes in in uh, in products and so on. You know, one of the things is it's kind of like when do you make the marketing material? When do you make the the thing that describes the product? One thing I tended to like to do is when a product is first being proposed, it's like, well, let's write the sort of proto marketing page that describes this product and says what the point of it is. That's pretty useful. But then when it's a question of, well, let's explain what's important about this product. And after you know it gets developed, it takes six months, a year, whatever it takes. And then you're finally getting ready to have it finished. To me, it's much better to, to really scramble at the end. Once you really know what the product is and once you can really see it and it's all working and it's all nice and smooth and polished and so on, you look at it and say, well, this is the part that I really want to emphasize. This is the part that's important. It tends to be that the procrastination of that is a good thing. And if you're like, oh, we've got to spend all this time on marketing in the middle of the, of the development and so on, it's like uh, that. It, a lot of that ends up getting wasted because in the end, when you've really got the thing developed, you realize this is the killer feature. And this thing that you thought was going to be the killer feature before, when you really see it properly developed, it's like, well, it's okay. But there's this path that you can go through, this use case that's really wonderful. And that's the thing you should do. So I, I tend to be, um, uh, that's that's a thing. Now, you know, when it comes to, I, I do a lot of stuff that is quite hard, uh, quite hard for me. I, I think it would be quite hard for, for anybody. And um, it's, uh, and sometimes there's a question of, well, how do I actually sit down one day and start doing something hard? Like right now I'm working on a, a, a rather a basic science project about metamathematics that is quite hard. I'm basically in the process of trying to sort of, well, not quite overturn, but to re turn in a different direction about 100 years of work that's been done in this area. And it's difficult. And it requires kind of a, a lot of kind of mental state to be able to get to the point where I've got all the right things in mind, to be able to make progress and write things and so on about it. And sometimes I find that a, a good way of sort of getting myself to the point where I'm, I'm ready to do this is, oh, I'll, I'll get some meetings set up with the people who are helping me with it. And that will kind of force me to be at this particular time at 9 p.m. or whatever, then I will be ready to actually think about this because I have this meeting set up at that time. Or alternatively, I'll, um, uh, I have to be somehow, I don't know what it is, but I have to, uh, I have to sort of uh, get myself ready. I have to know a couple of hours in advance. Oh, I'm going to, at this time, I'm really going to jump into doing this project. And if I kind of have a couple of hours warning, 
I'm kind of, I don't know, somehow unconsciously or something, I'm getting myself ready to do that. If it's like, uh, one thing it's like when I have meetings, which I do a lot of the time, I, I, I really don't like it when a meeting that I thought was just a kind of strategy discussion meeting ends up being a meeting where I'm actually writing content about something. I really don't like that, that kind of gear change. Uh, if I know it's going to be a writing meeting, fine. I sort of mentally get ready for it. And then that's what I do. And uh, it's, it's sort of it requires a slightly different preparation. But um, that, that's, uh, that's a kind of thing that, um, uh, well, the question was about energy. Okay, I will mention one other thing, which is I do something I didn't do when I was younger, but I do uh, sort of take a certain amount of exercise. And I, I think in the last two years, I have been at above 10,000 steps every single day. I think I have a, a two-year streak of being above 10,000 steps. And I, when I can, which is mo much of the time, I'll, I'll walk outside because I find that that's uh, pleasanter. Otherwise, I'll walk on a treadmill where I have a computer connected and so on. Um, I, I always um, uh, like to do, you know, I can do, there are many meetings that I can do where I'm just looking at things on a screen and I can do that when I'm walking outside. There are other things where I might have to type and so on. And those, if I'm, if I'm doing them when I'm walking, I got to be with the, the sort of more controlled environment. I do have a, a, a an elaborate setup for a, a thing that looks like one of those popcorn selling uh, uh, gadgets where you can sort of like wear a computer and type on it. Um, I use that when I absolutely have to, but I've tended not to not to use that so much. Let's see. There's a question here from Ark. What's the difference between planning for the future and envisioning a future? Uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think that I try quite a bit to sort of imagine what things, how things are going to develop in the future. And some of those things are things where I imagine how it will develop some piece of geopolitics or whatever else. And I have no control over that. And I'm just, okay, that's what's gonna happen. I can, uh, if, uh, and I sort of hope, oh, it's not gonna affect me. So that's interesting that I can predict that's what's gonna happen, but doesn't really affect me. So I'm just, I'm just a, you know, a, a, a bystander, so to speak. And there are other things where I'm like, uh, I can see this is what's potentially going to happen. Now let me plan around that and, and do that. The other thing that tends to be the case, so there's one thing which is like thinking what's going to happen in the future. The other is, where am I right now? What's happened to the projects and products and so on that I'm building? And where can I see that I can walk from where I am right now into the future? And that's a place where it's more sort of driven by the capabilities that one has, I think, in some, in some cases than by kind of the, the vision of what's possible in the future. I mean, I would say that, that a lot of things uh, I'm, I'm always like thinking about, well, you know, a lot of products that I'm involved in building are products that I also use. In fact, most things that I've been involved in building are things that I also use. And so as I use things, it's like I, I you know, very much keep in mind, what do I really want here? How could this be better? And that helps drive kind of the planning for what could happen in the future. Now, I will say that, you know, I make lists of things I plan to do and so on. And uh, I think a few years ago, we finally finished in terms of product features. We finally finished my 1991 to-do list of product features. And uh, that was something where it's very pragmatically, you know, these are things that I can see based on where we are now. 
and I could see these were things that would be useful going into the future. Um, I also have lists of projects that I keep where some of those projects are things that I'm really interested in it and I'm gradually accumulating information about it, but I'm not really ready to do it yet. So for example, one project that I've been interested in now for, oh, I don't know, 35 years is molecular computing. Uh, how, do you, how do you compute with molecules? And for a long time, I kind of would talk to people about it. I would collect material about it. I would think about it a little bit, but I kept on thinking it's not time yet. Things are not automated to the point where you know, if I were going to do this, I would have to be setting up a whole chemistry lab and I would have to be doing all kinds of things. And there's a lot of overhead. There's probably a decade's worth of overhead to doing it. And it's not something that's particularly relevant to my skills. What's happened now is both as a spin-off from our physics project and as a result of a particular company called Emerald Cloud Lab that's been building an automated uh, chemistry and biology lab um, that you can operate through Wolfram Language actually, um, that that has made it to the point where it actually is realistic for me to do something in molecular computing. And hopefully in the next few months, I will uh, start really working on that. But that's been something that I've been sort of imagining, envisioning in some sense for probably 35 years and knowing that it wasn't quite the right time to start doing it. And, uh, and now it perhaps is the right time. Finn says, I work 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. in programming and math. I feel it's fine, but people say I work too much and should give myself a break. Should I listen? They ask. Uh, when does my working day end? You know, I'm, people might call me a, a sort of workaholic. I probably worked without sort of vacationing or something for probably 40 years, and I work, you know, seven days a week, and I work... Um, uh, from, you know, I, I'm not an early riser, so I'm, I probably, my first um, uh, work is probably around 11 a.m. And I, and I keep working with a break at dinner time. I keep working until usually 2 a.m. Or, or, or a bit between 2 and 3 a.m. So I, you know, I guess I work hard um, in that sense. It doesn't feel like I'm working hard. It just feels like I'm doing stuff and, and getting things done. And, and I like that very much. Now, there's a question of, of when, when are you sort of, I mean, I, there are times when I, I think perhaps more in the past, I've learned how to, how to avoid this, where I feel like I'm just working, grinding, grinding, grinding on something. And it doesn't have, it has neither kind of joy nor life to it, so to speak. So let's say I'm writing something. If I'm writing something that's a very rote piece of writing, that uh, I know it's going to be terrible to read. It's boring to write. It's boring to read. It's a bad thing. That's kind of an over overworking kind of kind of uh, uh, thing. And that's a place where it's like, well, take a break, do something different. Now, I suppose in my life, I'm perhaps fortunate in some ways, although I sometimes get a bit frustrated by it. That you know, I I do sort of play CEO, so to speak, much of the time. And so that means I have sort of structured meetings where I'm like trying to figure things out and, and uh, sometimes a lot of the time trying to do product design, but also quite a lot of the time trying to do strategy and, and management of various kinds and, and so on. And I think the fact that I have those, those sort of fairly structured, fairly, um, I wouldn't say routine, but fairly have things with a fairly definite known rhythm helps me probably be more creative on the things that are sort of more free form that I tend to do at different times. 
and I my typical rhythm has been that um, I will do sort of structured meetings most of the day, and then I'll work on more creative, more solo projects in the evenings. Uh, like right now, just for for um, I happen to be working on well this meta mathematics project, and two people I'm working with, one's in California, one's in Moscow, and um, that uh, the 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 good time for a meeting is midnight Eastern time. So I've been uh, doing the the sort of midnight meeting pretty much every day for the last little while, and that's um you know that that's kind of a a different piece of the of the rhythm that won't that won't last much longer because that's just specific to this particular project. But that's the type of thing. But I think that having this kind of these these things that I do that are not just sit down with a blank notebook and uh, start figuring stuff out. The fact that there are more structured things that I do for part of the day is probably helpful. I mean, I also find that, um, I, and I should have better measurements of this. That you know, I can sit and work on something for a certain period of time, and then I kind of have to get up and kind of walk around and kind of uh, sort of let my brain reset in some way. You know, I've been doing a, a piece of personal eccentricity, I suppose. I've been recording what I call video work logs. So even when I'm just working by myself, I'll screen record what I'm doing. And I think we've been even uploading these videos. I, I don't guarantee that they're not just unutterably boring um, because they're just me sitting and writing things, figuring stuff out, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I, I've actually found that recording those things, even if I don't seriously think anybody's ever going to watch them, are a nice way to get me to just like, oh, focus, focus a bit more than I might otherwise focus. But I find that after, I don't know, it's probably about an hour and a half, two hours, something like that, I kind of need to, if I've been focused on something very much, I kind of need to get up and wander around for a few minutes. Um, uh, just somehow, I don't, I don't know, I think I, I need some kind of reset or I get um, just drilling too much into the same thing. I mean, also for me, I tend to, when I'm working on, on things, I'll, I'll always have more email that's coming in, more email about more kinds of things. And I'll, uh, I'll, I'll kind of, every so often, I'll sort of take a break and process some of that and then go back to the main thing that I was doing. The, the, the trick is not to do something that is, uh, particularly when I, some of these projects that I'm doing, particularly more intellectual, scientific, technologically complicated projects, I really have to maintain quite a lot of state and if I go off and start doing something different in the middle of that, I lose state and I can't really, it's much more difficult. I find it very painful to go back to something. If I've developed, I'm really in the right state to do something. I remember everything that's going on and then I have to derail and do something different and then come back. I find that very difficult. I mean, for me personally, I have about probably a two or three day sort of memory window when most of the state that I've developed for something is still there. If I have to derail for more time than that, I have to kind of climb back up the hill and get back that state again. I, I personally find that very frustrating, and um, I, uh, it makes me much more, much less uh, willing to go and start doing the thing again. And I end up sort of procrastinating it as a result. So it's much better for me just to find a way to just continue it, or maybe even just continue it for a small amount of time per day, just so that I keep the kind of the, the state maintained to keep going. Uh, let's see. There's a question. There's so many questions here. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump a little bit to the end here and uh, answer some that have come in a bit more recently. The question from Pi three: 
Do I listen to music while working? The answer to that is no. I, I, I think maybe it's the sign of, of being ancient or something that I just, I like to be in a, in a kind of a, an environment where I can really just concentrate on one thing. And I find uh, occasionally I will listen to music when I'm doing something that I find really frustrating. Like if I'm processing, I don't know, some big, I don't know, if I'm sorting some big list of names into this and that. So if I'm doing something where I'm just grinding through a bunch of files looking for this or that thing or, or something like that, or if I'm grinding through email that I find fairly uh, monotonous to deal with, I occasionally listen to music. It has to be music without vocals. And I've been steadily trying to find all kinds of different styles of music that are upbeat, but don't have vocals in them. Because any vocal, I'm, I'm like listening to it and I'm, I'm like, uh, I'm starting to type the words or something as I, as I write my piece of email and that would be pretty disastrous. Um, but uh, for me, I, I tend to just, I really want to focus on one thing and uh, I don't find music, music useful for that. Okay, the only use I've really had for it uh, in terms of working is um, when, when I'm doing something I find monotonous, it kind of just sort of, you know, keeps me cheerful while doing it and, and maybe speeds me up a little bit by, by listening to some kind of rousing uh, non-vocal music, so to speak, while doing it. But I, I think it, I'm not a, not a real consumer of that. I know when I was much, much younger, um, a very long time ago, I would even, uh, when I was, uh, uh, well, let's see, mid to late teenager, I would even like watch television while I was sort of on, in the corner while I was working, but I haven't done that in a, in a very, very, very long time. I, I was uh, mostly, that was when I was in England and I was like watching American television shows that to, to uh, you know, uh, and learning American culture as, as, as one could or couldn't from watching American television shows, I have to say a little footnote, personal footnote. When I was um, uh, in school in England, I, I um, one had to write some sort of essay for some standardized English literature exam type thing. And so somehow I ended up writing this um, essay about uh, uh, themes in American popular television, which was a, a convenient thing to do given that I was kind of watching it a bunch of time as it was. And I, I my, my big, sort of break in terms of understanding that there were sort of themes in American television was there used to be a, a, a police TV show called Kojak. There was, I'm sure it's been, not been on for a very, very long time, but it was a kind of a, I wouldn't claim it was a very upscale show, but it, um, uh, it was one, one time when at the very end of the show that the main character turns to the camera and has this says, uh, you know, when there's some terrible thing that's happening in the background, says the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And that was kind of a clue for me. That definitely wasn't an in-character thing to say. So I realized that must be a quote from somebody. And of course, I looked it up and found out what it was. And I discovered that every single show ended with one of these, you know, quotes from a famous American thinker type thing. And that was, uh, that was kind of a, a big break for my, for my little effort in that regard. Anyway. Um, Silly footnote. I, I also wrote in that essay about um, the themes of Star Trek, but that's that's a different story, um, and the frontier spirit and so on in Star Trek. Um, okay, let's see. Uh, question from Frost: Do you advise young professionals to quotes play the game, as in follow rules, meet requirements, concede to superiors, be political in academia, 
or the commercial sector? Do you respect people who, who follow this approach? You know, the thing is, it depends on your personality, what you should do. I mean, there are people where they can be very productive, very satisfied, very effective in sort of doing things according to the game. And there are other people where they've got their vision of what to do, they have the tenacity to just go execute it, and that's what they should do. It's just like there are people I know who will, you know, win every prize, you know, get every, you know, uh, get every possible job, uh, you know, do all these kinds of things. And they can be effective doing that. But somebody else, it, it's, you know, these are sort of independent factors, I think, to what to whether you are able to be personally fulfilled and whether you're able to be effective at what you're doing. And I think it's, it's quite personality dependent. I mean, for me personally, I'm much more interested in I want to figure out what I want to do than I want to try and do it, even if it's a, a big, you know, it's a kind of a difficult thing and people are always trying to derail it and there's lots of problems and so on. I'd prefer to take action and be solving those problems. That's much more relaxing for me than to be in a situation where, well, mostly other people are taking care of me, but I'm being pushed in this direction. I'm being pushed in that direction. I, you know, I find that rather uh, unpleasant and I find it much more pleasant to just deal with all the work it takes to just do it your own way. But not everybody is like that. And I think it's, it's very, very personality dependent. I think that there are people where there's a question of, of, you know, can one change the way one does it? Can one be a follow the rules, do, do it the way one's supposed to do it, and then suddenly jump out and do it differently? Maybe. I mean, I know for myself, you know, I happen to go through these sort of quotes, follow the rules a bit, at least, in academia for the, for in, my, in my early 20s, for example. But it was pretty clear in retrospect that many of the things I was doing, well, I could get away with doing those things in academia, but they were not standard academic practices, so to speak. They were more things that were more entrepreneurial, more let me just do my own thing, let me figure out how to work in the things I want to work on, you know, work with the people I want to work with and so on. And they were not things which were a good fit for academia, but it was sort of close enough that I could make it work. Um, I'm not sure how well that would have continued. And I think for people, when it's, if it's a question of, okay, you know, you're, you're in some large organization and the way ahead is mostly politicking with your superiors type thing, um, that, uh, uh, you know, is that something which, you know, can you kind of do that sort of on the side without that becoming the story of, of, of your life, so to speak, um, and still do the thing you really want to do? Or does that become the thing that dominates what you have to do? Now, you might, it might be that you like that. I mean, I, I am, uh, for example, uh, somebody I know very well who, is, who loves bureaucracy and um, who, has, who has learned over the years how to kind of manage, you know, he says, bureaucracy is what adds viscosity to situations. If you, if you, you know, things might go too fast if it wasn't for bureaucracy. And in some cases, that will be a bad thing. So you layer in a certain amount of bureaucracy. Now, for me, dealing with bureaucracy is just incredibly painful. For this person, it's like something he understands very well, and he knows kind of how to manage both his own personal expectations and kind of how to manage the system to, go, to get through that. So I think it's, it's very, uh, uh, you know, very dependent on person what, what the right thing to do is. 
And in terms of do I, uh, you know, I guess for me, uh, the question was, do I respect people who sort of play the game and follow that approach? I, 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 I think I respect people who do the things that work for them and don't end up always being in a situation where they're doing things that don't work for them and where they're always like having an excuse for why things didn't work out because they were forced to do this or that thing that wasn't what they should have been doing. It's like find a niche where you can do the things that you are that are right for you. And it is sometimes difficult to find that niche. And but, you know, and sometimes it's a complicated puzzle to figure out where in the world are the things, the skills and kind of predilections that one has uh, sort of well able to be fitted in. But I think that's the thing where I tend to respect people where they've been very successful at finding how they fit in and, and seeing even if it's an activity that I'm like, Really, that that's what you're doing. Like, you know, that seems like a surprise to me. And I think about it, and I realize, but that's just a great fit for this person and what they uh, and, and what who they are and, and what they're interested in and what they're and what they're good at. I, I was mentioning something about how these things change over time. I think people develop. I mean, people have a certain pattern, and there are certain things that I think pretty much remain the same throughout one's life. I mean, there are things I, I'm I'm shocked when I look at things. I Somebody just sent me back a letter that I sent when I was 12 years old. And I'm, I'm shocked that, at how similar some of it is to things that I would write today. I mean, it's, I'm amused by the fact that it's full of uh, Britishisms that are bizarre and almost incomprehensible to the modern American uh, kind of uh, reader. But um, it's still kind of, kind of striking how, you know, over a 50 year span or something, uh, there's so much that doesn't change. And I think that the the the, the thing is usually we're sort of we're, we're we're given a certain set of of characteristics, and it's like how do you fit those into the world, rather than how do I dramatically change those characteristics? Now, often you can sort of refactor how those characteristics are used, um, and sometimes you have to understand what is the core characteristic. I mean, for example, for myself, I've you know I've worked on a lot of different projects. And in the end, I've understood that there's a particular pattern of how I work on things, which is I'll take some fairly complicated area, I'll kind of drill down to figure out what is the essence, what are the key things, the sort of primitives that lie underneath that, and then I'll do a bunch of sort of practical engineering-ish or other work to sort of build up from that. And that's been the pattern that I followed, and it's sort of the pattern that is the story of, I don't know, Wolfram Language and the story of a bunch of science I've done and so on. The manifestations of its science, its technology development, its even management and, and business strategy and so on, the manifestations are different, but the mode of operation is remarkably similar. It's remarkably much, you know, you take this complicated area, you drill down, you find the essential things and you build back up from there. That happens to be my personal uh, mode of operation and even understanding that that's what one's good at is useful because it lets one sort of select projects one should do and shouldn't do. I mean, for myself, for example, I'm I'm really I'm bad at doing things where I'm like in a in a committee, being in a, you know a consensus decision making, whatever. I I don't think I say the right things. I don't think I do the right things. I don't like it at all. I find it very frustrating and very unfulfilling. But there are other people that I know who are just great at operating in those situations. And that's, you know, that's where they should be. It's not where I should be. Let's see. Uh, 
It's a question from Emmanuel, probably not Kant, but um, anyway, I, uh, um, what do I spend personal money on? Do I treat myself to nice stuff? You know, here's the thing. I've, I've been fortunate enough to make a decent amount of money in my life. I would say that it's that the challenge is, can you make more money than you immediately feel you need to spend? If you make dramatically more money than you can spend, that's a huge sort of weight in its own right. And it's something where, uh, you know, I, I might feel, oh, I should be making more money at this and that and the other, and that would be nice. But really, you know, it's, it becomes a big sort of a, a big weight of what are you going to do with all this money? And, and, uh, and I think so. But my point of view is, if you make money, you might as well spend some of it. It's, um, and you know, I have a, a house that's probably too big, actually multiple houses um, that, uh, uh, and that's, you know, that's useful. I, um, uh, I, you know, when it comes to electronics and gadgets, yeah, I get whatever I can, um, uh, you know, whatever I think I might conceivably find useful, I will get. Um, when it comes to, you know, the, the kind of, um, uh, the, the things, I think one of the things that happens is there's a, you know, there are different sort of scales of, of money that one gets to. And one is better off, I think, when one is at a point where the things that one immediately wants to do are things that are within the range of the money that one has. So, for example, you know, I wouldn't think about, you know, if, it, if it's like, well, should I go out to get dinner in some place? I don't really think about, uh, you know, oh, is this going to be a more or less expensive restaurant? I'll, I'll growl when I see the bill is huge. But it's not something where the, that scale is not something at which I'm really going to make a big distinction. If it's a question of, of um, and the same with, you know, going on this plane flight or that plane flight, it, it, it happens that the scale of money that I you know, deal with is such that that is sort of in the noise. If it's a question of, oh, should I buy some giant house somewhere? Yeah, it's a quite different question. That's a scale of money large for, for me and I'll, I'll make a big uh, uh, sort of, that'll be a big production as far as I'm concerned. As far as, uh, and it's the same is true with, um, uh, well, you know, an issue right now, uh, something that I'm kind of grappling with right now is about science and doing science and what money should be spent on science. So, you know, in, in doing this physics project that I've done and a bunch of the sequelae from that, some of that is basic science. It's basic science that I don't think has a, a serious expectation of commercial payback. Although I have to say, I've been surprised at how rapidly some ideas have emerged from our physics project that I thought, I thought it might be 300 years before there was sort of practical things that came from our physics project. But actually there's a bunch of things that are sort of spin-offs that are much more immediate. But the question is really, if one's gonna do basic science, how does one pay for that? I mean, my own time, that's not an issue, but I have people working with me and so on. And there are things that, and you know, even computers, although that's again, not such an issue um, that one actually has to spend money on. And it's a question of how much should one spend? And is it at a point where the scale of money that I have and feel I can spend is such that I can just say, oh, let's just spin up this group of, of uh, 50 people or something to go work on basic science. I don't feel I can do that. Maybe I could manage it, I don't know, but I don't feel like, I, I feel like that would be something that I, sh I shouldn't do because it's sort of too much money spent 
in um, in a way that doesn't really feel right to me. I also don't feel like it's the right thing because I feel like if it's just if I'm just the source of all that money, there's no kind of accountability. It's just like, well, I kind of want to do it, and so I'm doing it, and it's it's kind of not um, the world didn't tell us anything about whether it cares and so on. So that's a place where if it's a question of you know should one spend one's money to spin up more basic science because one finds basic science fun, uh, you know, I spent a certain amount on that, but um, I, you know, we're actually starting this Wolfram Institute, which will be an effort to uh, to build that up on a larger scale. Um, and and I don't, I'm I'm not going to be the one funding that. Um, and so that's a that's an example of a place where there's sort of a there might be a point if if I'd for example, uh, you know, sold off some big piece of technology for for an obscene amount of money, I might say, I've got so much money, I'm just going to throw it into this, uh, uh, this institute, even though no money is ever going to come back from that. But I'm not in that situation. So I, I don't, uh, and I also don't think it will be a, a healthy way to do it. Um, the, uh, um, I'm being reminded by somebody in my, my team here, it's an unusual message. I don't usually get ones from people in my team that um, in terms of how I spend money, and I, I sort of minimize these things, but, but um, uh, that I spend money to, to uh, have do lots of time-saving types of things. Like uh, it's, um, uh, it's kind of like I can avoid, you know, doing all those kinds of standard domestic types of things and grocery shopping and this and that and the other. And yeah, I don't do those things. And I, I, I take the time that I save from that um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm spending the money on that in order to have the extra time in order to do the things that I really want to do. And that's a that's a hugely good deal for me, because the amount of money it costs to, to not have to do those things is quite small compared to the amount of money that I can even make by 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 doing actual sort of uh, technologically productive things in the time that I save that way. So, yeah, I definitely I'm very much on along the lines of don't spend money on um, uh, on uh, spend money to to sort of save time and optimize many things. I, I yes, I, I I think I'm being reminded of this because it is true that I have a ridiculous number of things where I notice oh there's a thing that's taking me extra time. Let me figure out how to build a system so I can avoid spending that time. And yes, costs money usually to build those systems. Once built, they save me time which is very valuable to me. Um, let's see. It's a question from Emmanuel here. Did I ever have to live with noisy upstairs neighbors? Let me think about that question. I haven't had, I've, I've lived in a sort of separate house for, for um, since the mid eighties. So before that time, before that time, noisy neighbors. I don't think so, but you know, one thing that I've done forever and ever and ever is I'm a, I'm a white noise generator while asleep person. So it's like that used to be, a, you know, it's, a, it's either an actual fan or it's a computer with a white noise app or it's a, uh, or it's some, you know, if I'm like on a plane or something, it'll be, a, 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 if I'm on a, you know, a, a commercial plane, it'll be like, um, uh, um, you know, just play white noise into a headset type thing. So I, I, I tend to be um, 
somebody who, yes, I, I like to be in my own kind of audio bubble, so to speak. And um, for that uh, white noise, you know, it's some number of decibels of white noise is enough to mask some number of decibels of outside sound, depending on exactly which kinds of sounds they are. Um, but I don't, I don't recall a, a time when I've, um, uh, when I've encountered this specifically noisy neighbor phenomenon. Um, okay, a couple of questions here. Um, Parmenides asks, how do I decide between accuracy, speed, and readability of code? Which trade-off do I take and why? It's an interesting question. It depends on what kind of thing I'm doing. So I don't write a lot of production code that's going to be used by in a production system by tons of people. I used to do that. Um, now that's the feature of running a software company is that, that there are people who do that all the time and are really good at doing that. So for, uh, for you know, code that is really production grade and really bulletproofed and so on, that's something I personally don't usually do. Um, I write tons of code that is for uh, doing research kinds of things and for sort of one-off tasks that I do, I would say that most of the time there, I, I try to be, okay, what often happens is I'll write the simple version very quickly. I think I know roughly what, 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 what happens. Then I'll realize I want to generalize that. And so then I'll kind of add little pieces to it and it'll get more and more complicated. And eventually I'll say, this is horrible. It's a giant tower of mess and it's going to fall over. Let me write a cleaner version from scratch and I'll rewrite it as I'll sort of rebuild it in some cleaner, better factored way now that I understand what I actually want it to do. Um, I would say one of the things that's really important in writing, and I, essentially all the code I write is in Wolfram language, um, the uh, one thing that's really important is the design of the, the functions that I'm writing and so on. And I would say that, uh, you know, I spend a lot of my life doing language design. So I've obviously got lots of experience with that. Uh, often the design takes a while to do right. And when I'm just doing things quickly, I won't do the design right. I'll do the kind of, you know, yes, I've got a big base of experience for that, but I'll just do the first thing that comes to mind. And, you know, I'll have to name some function. I'll come up with a pretty crummy name first time around. If I go on using that function, that will always bite me. When I come back three weeks later and look at it, I'll be like, what the heck does this function do? I have no idea based on its name. And so, you know, that, that's a force to, to rewrite things. But I'll tend to, you know, first when I'm doing research kinds of things, I'll first do the shoddy thing and then gradually sort of build around it and often have these sort of refactoring moments where I make it cleaner. Now, when I'm going to write code that is for other people to read, then I go to more effort. It's just like, what do I do when I write notes to myself versus when I write things that are intended for other people to read and, and assimilate and learn from and so on. And there's, a, there's usually a stage where I'm writing, uh, a lot, the things that I write typically have the code that makes every picture that's in all the things that I write is, is right there. You can find it by just clicking the, the picture. And I'll go to some effort uh, to make at least some of that code as, as clean as I can. Sometimes I think it's more important that it just makes the picture, I'm not so worried about how clean the code is. But when it's intended for, for communication, when it's something that I'm directly going to show there, yes, I'll make a lot of effort to make it really clean and really, uh, really be able to explain itself, just as I might make effort to write a piece of English in a way that really explains itself. I think in terms of 
of things about um, uh, sort of accuracy of is the code right? Is it doing the right thing? I'm not a big believer in for myself for sort of research type programming of all this sort of you know continuous testing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm always you know, let me try it out. Let me try out all these different cases. Let me make sure I understand what's happening. I, I will often, uh, when I write a new version of something, I often rerun it on all the things I ran it on before. I was very amused, a person who, who works has worked with me, um, who's very insistent on, you know, software engineering methodologies, um, even in research programming. Um, I, I just saw just yesterday a place where he has this, these unit tests in a particular piece of research code and it's like, well, that's a nice unit test, but actually the thing that's horribly wrong with this code is a conceptual issue that has nothing to do with whether it passed its unit tests. So it's kind of like wrong, wrong technology to apply to research programming, so to speak. Um, I think that uh, uh, another question here is speed of code. How fast does it run? Uh, you know, I try to be sensible about that, but I usually try to not be obsessive about that because I'm more interested usually in the time it's taking me to write the code than it is how long it takes the computer to run the program. It's uh, like, for example, last night I was running something. I wanted to get a bunch of results. I, I wrote something. It's not particularly optimized, but, uh, you know, then I let it run uh, overnight and it got a couple more results. It didn't get as far as I had hoped actually, and maybe it'll have to be optimized now. But it was like, well, I could have thought about this for a lot more time, but it was better to just start the program running, go to sleep, let the computer do all the work rather than me having to do more thinking, so to speak. But you know, I, I, what, what I tend to find is once you know what's important or what you care about, or what the code path that's really gonna matter is, that's the time you really go in and optimize things. Now, having said that, you know, I try and be sensible about that. And I think one thing to realize about programming is it's often the case. There's, there's a lot more judgment in programming than people sometimes give it credit for. I mean, there's a lot of judgment in the overall design. Do you design the right functions? That has a huge, huge effect on how efficiently you can build a large system. It's like, how do you fit these pieces together? Do you have the right pieces? Or do you always have to write glue all the time to fit things together? I mean, that's been the story of Wolfram Language is building this kind of consistent tower of coherent functionality that one can then leverage. That's, that's part of the story. Now, as far as when you're inside the code and doing things, there's an awful lot of times where it's like, let me make a judgment call. Should this work this way? Do I cache this? Do I make this, uh, you know, represent this in this way or that way? And I, I've been surprised at, at those are things which, you know, after lots of experience in writing programs and things, I've gotten, I think, decently good at doing. I know when we were first writing the code of Wolfram Language, Mathematica, um, you know, I wrote a bunch of, of the sort of gnarly internal things like pattern matching code and things like this. And that code is just full of heuristic decisions. It's like this bit field should be a 16-bit bit field. This should be broken into 50 different cases. And, and these are the rough cases. And this is how they're delineated. And this thing should be optimized to have a minimal code path. And this should not. There are tons of those judgment calls that I made, including many actual, you know, there's this particular breakpoint at 24, you know, elements or, or whatever it is. And, and the issue is, did you get those right or not? Well, eventually they can be measured after there's you know billions of uses of these things. You can measure them. And, and actually, 
I think a lot of the time I'm, I'm happy to say I did get those things more or less right. And that's something where those kinds of, uh, sometimes with other, with people doing programming, one thing I see is people freezing and saying, well, I could do it this way. I could use a, this kind of data structure or that kind of data structure. I don't know what to do. I got to do one or the other. I've got to, you know, I, I can't just make this arbitrary judgment call of, you know, this is the breakpoint, use this for that case, that for this case, and just sort of move on and be happy, so to speak. But I think that's an important part of programming. And in terms of speed of things, that can have a huge effect is making these kind of judgment-based calls about what to do. But I tend to, for research type programming, I tend to just uh, be sensible, but the most important thing is getting it to work. Um, when it comes to production type programming, Again, the most important thing there for our main system, main Wolfram language system, is make the design good, make the implementation solid. And then I would say the next issue is make it fast. Um, but that's probably the hierarchy. And uh, uh, there's always, in the case of Wolfram language, we're always quite careful about sort of corner cases and so on. For research programming, I couldn't care less about the corner cases unless it turns out you know, the corner cases where our whole universe is hiding or something like that. Um, but, uh, and, and, you know, with, with research type programming, there'll be things where there's a list of results and there are some error messages generated because I didn't deal with a case of a zero length list or whatever else. I don't care because that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for to get some intuition based on those results and, and see what the general story is. So question from... Um, uh, Yijian here. What's my opinion on company acquisition? Has Wolfram Research ever acquired other companies? If so, how quickly can one integrate an acquired company? Uh, we have generally not been a acquire companies kind of company. Um, we have done it a few times when there are companies that have built things with our technology stack and where we think that there's that sort of things can work better when it's integrated into our company than when it isn't. Typically, those acquisitions have been of companies that were, in a sense, at least technologically very enculturated to us. I think a lot of times when people buy companies, they buy them for essentially customer lists. Um, and I think that kind of integration can be, in a sense, rather straightforward. You're just like, well, you've got to find out some plan for how you market the new product to the old customers. But that's sort of a, a fairly e easy kind of integration. When it's a question of really deeply integrating technology, that can be very hard and, and often just doesn't really happen. And it's always this extra piece. Sometimes it's a good idea for it to be an extra piece. Sometimes there are plenty of even technology companies where it's kind of like, well, we've got this suite of products and they're all kind of separate points of light, so to speak, that came from different acquisitions. Um, I think that sort of a, 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 often a bad case is where you don't admit that and you're trying to, trying to say it's really all very integrated, but actually it's not, because it's really hard to do this integration because you have different design modalities, you have different kind of cultural features of these different companies and so on. I mean, when I see companies being acquired, you know, I'll sometimes say, it's just not gonna work. The cultures of these companies are just too different. It'll either get spat out again, or it'll just you know, fail, vanish without trace, or, or something bad will happen, so to speak, just because there isn't a good cultural match. And I think in, in general, I mean, there are some industries where the sort of the whole story of the industry is you are 
acquiring a collection of kind of content producing companies in some way, and you are providing the overarching framework in which those companies can operate. Um, that's not something that I've been particularly involved in, but that's something that one sees working. It's also the case that, well, another thing to say about acquisitions is when you have a company of a certain size, it is not trivial to do new things. I mean, doing new things is, is always hard in a company because you've got a company, if the company is not failing horribly, it's got a shtick that it's doing and that shtick is working. And most of the people in the company are like, we're doing this thing and it's working. You say, well, we should do something new. People say, really? You know, we're doing this thing and it's working. Why do you want to go spend a bunch of money on this new thing that's very uncertain? Why don't we just spend the money on tweaking the main thing that we're doing that's already going very well? And so it's often very challenging to do kind of that special project that's new and different within the context of a company that is being successful at something it's already doing. I know, for example, when I, uh, well, in, in our company, we basically had Mathematica and what's now Wolfram Language for many years. And then, for example, I started doing Wolfram Alpha project. And that project was not a project that I could really, if, if that project had been sort of presented to most of the company and said, should we do this? Should we not do this? The answer would be, don't do it. It's a, you know, why would we do this? We've got a shtick that's working. Why would we do something different and new? And I built that as a kind of a special project. I had this special projects group. And eventually I was kind of hiding about 200 employees who were working on that project as part of the special projects group. It helps to have a geo-distributed company if you want to do something like that. It helps a lot to have a private company where uh, you don't have to answer to investors and, and board meetings and, and so on in, um, uh, in, in explaining what you're doing. But uh, that was something where, you know, my management team, once, once we had a real thing there and we could present the real thing, people were like, oh, yeah, this is interesting. This is cool. But if it had been earlier on, there would have been a tremendous effort to kill it because it just didn't seem like it was the right thing for, for the company to be doing because it just is low leverage relative to just tweaking the main, main shtick, so to speak. And I think it's often much easier for companies to say, let's have somebody else who did that early sort of you know, development of something. Let's just buy that company, bring it in and, uh, and try and, um, uh, and, and get that kind of innovation by the innovation, so to speak, rather than having to internally do the innovation. I think one of the things that we've been rather successful at with our company is that over the last, I don't know, 20 years or so, we've really developed a very good kind of rhythm of innovation that gives people within the company the expectation that we will do new things. And guess what? A bunch of new things we've done in the past have worked out really well. So it doesn't make sense to just kill every new thing on the grounds that it's lower leverage than the things we're already doing. And that's a, that's a kind of a cultural feature of a company that is fairly unusual that one has the idea that yes, new things can be done and it makes sense to do that. Now it's a challenge always, I think I've mentioned this in, in these live streams before, it's always a challenge. You have a special projects group and the special projects group does a special project and the special project is successful. And then what happens? Well, what tends to happen in our company is most of the people in the special projects group go and become part of the mainstream project that they built. And so, for example, right now, I am rebuilding our special projects group 
because I've got a, a bunch of new, quote, special projects that I want to do that don't fit in anywhere else. And the people who were sort of in the previous generation of special projects group have become mainstream project people working on the projects that were incubated in the special projects group. So that's kind of a the internal uh, innovation problem is, is having to do that. But that's, that's for me, it's a better scheme than, um, uh, than the acquisition kind of scheme. Um, I would say that in terms of, well, one of the, um, uh, one acquisition we did was of a, a product we now call System Modeler, a systems engineering product. That was, when did we do that acquisition? Seven, eight years ago, something like that now. And there's been sort of progressive integration of that into Wolfram Language. It's its own separate product as well, but there's progressive integration and lots of good stuff has been done there, but I would say we're not in any way finished in that integration. And it's been seven, eight years, whatever it is now. I think that the thing to say about that is probably our standards for design are very high. And so taking something which is kind of the, the different design track is particularly difficult for us. Now, is it valuable to do that? Yes, it is valuable. In fact, it's very interesting because the kind of design you have to do for systems engineering when you've got this, you know, a jet engine and you're representing all its components and you're seeing how they interact with each other. That's an interesting kind of design, different from what we've encountered in other parts of Wolfram language. And the effort of sort of merging those together is very interesting, but we haven't done it yet. We're, we're on the path to doing it, but it's not finished yet. And that's been, been a great many years. Boy, that, that proves my sense of time is wrong. Someone point out that uh, uh, system math core and system modeler we acquired it in 2011, so it's been it's been 10 years, a little bit 10 and a half years. Um, FJ says the question says the dad retired very early and has got no direction, no focus, no job. Uh, what can I advise that he learns and does that will be worth doing? You know, I think a good friend of mine is always telling me that the most dangerous thing a person can do for their health is to retire. And um, uh, this friend of mine is, is rather, is considerably older than me. And um, I think this is this kind of way of, of uh, saying that he's never going to retire. But, um, you know, it's a funny thing because I think people, I don't know to what extent it's cause and effect, but it does seem to be the case that by the time people say, oh, I'm pulling the plug, I'm going to retire. Uh, it's, um, uh, it, it does tend to have this feature that it's like, well, what do I do next? Now, you know, I see people who have kind of a life plan. I meet them, they're 20 years old. They say, I'm going to work very hard for years. I'm going to be a, you know, a finance person. I'm going to do this, that, and the other. And then I'm going to retire. And then I'm going to do what I really want to do. And it's like, that is a very bad plan. You know, you're going to spend 30 years of your life doing something you say you don't really want to do in order that you can do the thing that you think now you're going to want to do 30 years from now. That's a bad plan. Find a way to do something where you can do on an ongoing basis the thing you really want to do. Maybe that's doing it as a serious hobby. Maybe that's finding some way to be in a niche where you can actually do that for a living, so to speak. You know, I think in terms of, of what people... Um, who uh, I'm trying to think, I mean, I, I have seen various good retirements, let's say. I'm, I'll mention a, a good retirement. It's not really a retirement because I was a young person, but, but um, uh, 
yeah, my, I, I would say that, um, um, for example, my friend Brewster Kale, who sold a couple of companies when he was quite young, retired and started this thing called the Internet Archive. And it was a nonprofit. And he was like, well, I'm just doing this kind of for fun and so on. I think it's been going 20, 25 years now. And it's a great thing. And I think he's had a great time with it. And it was sort of, I mean, he was young when he quotes retired, but it was sort of a quotes retirement project in some sense. And, you know, there are people who build things because they say, well, I, I really, uh, you know, the thing that I really want to do that I'm really doing for a living is this thing that's a big, heavy lift, hard piece of work. The thing I kind of really want to do is actually, I'm, I'm now thinking of another person I know who, who uh, took up painting when she kind of retired and became a pretty well-known painter, um, pretty successful painter. And um, uh, again, had a great time with that. And it's a thing where it's like, you do this heavy lifting thing that was the thing you thought you should do as part of your job. And you kind of got maybe trapped into doing because it was the thing that made you a bunch of money and so on. And then there's the thing that you really wanted to do and, and now you start doing it. And I, I think it's, it's um, uh, you know, I don't know, it's a sort of chicken and egg type thing. If there's really nothing one wants to do, then, then that's a problem. But it's somehow, sometimes when you start doing things they become, they, they feel like they're more things that one wants to do. So I would say that the, the um, uh, you know, I, I think the problem of a retired person who says, I don't know what to do is a little bit similar to the problem of a high school student who says, I don't know what, I, what, what to do. It's like, first question is, well, what's out there in the world to even imagine doing? And the more you can be exposed to those different kinds of things, the more you say, hey, that's the thing I really like. I mean, I've often found that people very much sort of vote with their time. That is, they, um, uh, they kind of, uh, you know, they say, well, I don't really like doing this and I know I don't really want to blah, blah, blah. But then you see, what do they actually spend their time on? And guess what? They're actually spending their time, I don't know, doing, um, uh, writing this or that kind of thing or, or playing around with this or whatever else. And that's a good indication of what, you know, what's the thing that is really going to sort of float their boat, so to speak. And I, I think it's, um, uh, you know, the first question is sort of to learn what's out there. And for somebody who's maybe been in some job for many years, just sort of, you know, head down doing a particular thing. And it's like, oh, I woke up. Now, you know, it's 30 years later, and the world's changed. And gosh, there's all these different things one can do. And what are those things? And that's kind of the, the first step, I think, is to kind of inventory those kinds of things. Um, the, uh, see, this is a bad thing. My, my team has learned that they can send me messages here and um, are saying, speaking of something I don't want to do, I'm, I have another meeting that I'm supposed to go to, which I have been avoiding. Uh, it is true. This is a, a piece of... Um, uh, and why have I been avoiding it? I've been avoiding it because it's iteration three of something which I think the team that's working on it should have been able to figure out. And I'm kind of resenting the fact that, that it's being uh, sent back to me again. But um, uh, so I'm gonna do one more question here and then I will go and do that, um, do that meeting. Uh, let's see what I can find here that um, I think I can do reasonably quickly. Um, Well, okay, there's a question here from um, Eric asking, 
building an app that takes human languages input, do you feel that the current state of the art in parsers and compilers based on Chomsky and trees and ASTs and so on are in need of a rethink? Well, so natural language understanding is something where I think it's fair to say that, that our company has kind of developed the kind of best in the world way of doing that. I wouldn't claim it's clean and beautiful, but it works. It's the thing we use for Wolfram Alpha and for all the people who license Wolfram Alpha, both for, for general purpose purposes and for enterprise purposes, for more specific kinds of, uh, of natural language understanding. What we've built is something that does not use pretty much any standard computational linguistics techniques. It really uses its own kind of approaches that uh, uh, I've been meaning for like 10 years. I've been thinking we should describe to the world how this all works. Um, but we haven't ever got around to it. And we've always been like, well, let's just build more stuff rather than writing the, the great expositional essay about how it all works. But it, it's a kind of a mixture of core ideas about how you put together and, and tear apart language together with kind of the practices of a linguistic curation of how do you get, how do you have people teach sort of algorithmic fragments of language in the right way to the system to make it do things. We, we continually experiment with sort of machine learning kinds of techniques. And there are a few corners where we can just like zoom ahead by using a little dash of machine learning here or there. But for the most part for natural language understanding, and, and the key thing, by the way, in our natural language understanding, there's, there's one key idea, which is that the target is Wolfram language. That is what's happening is you're going from English or other languages, works in a bunch of languages, you're going from, from natural language to Wolfram language, symbolic computational language. And that means you have a target. Sometimes people say, I'm gonna make my computer understand a piece of text. What does it mean to understand a piece of text? Well, for us, it has a very definite meaning. It's turn that piece of text into precise symbolic computational language. And that's, that's kind of the thing we have to do. It turned out to be incredibly important for us that we have a lot of knowledge of the world to allow us to disambiguate things in natural language understanding. So people's traditional approach to this have been build a, a, a standalone natural language understanding module. I think that's kind of doomed. I mean, both you need the target, you need the whole symbolic language underneath, and you need the huge knowledge base to know what kinds of things language will talk about. Now, when it comes to uh, the sort of the separate issues about um, um, kind of language in, um, uh, well, for example, uh, our computational language, Wolfram language, is syntactically quite simple, and that's good. And in fact, one thing I've discovered is that any time you make such a language not syntactically simple, people get confused. There's no real cost to making it syntactically simple. The reason English and other languages aren't syntactically simple is they've been built up over a long period of time historically. You can kind of see the places where they kind of went off in weird directions because of some weird historical issue. It's not a necessary thing to language. It may be convenient for writing poetry. It's not relevant for communication to have sort of a, an, an impure syntax, so to speak. So it's just fine to use sort of pretty traditional context-free language as the language for the, the sort of symbolic computational language that is the precise thing you write. 
why have something that's as messy as human language that you don't need it, it doesn't have an advantage. It's much better to have something very clean, very precise, that's easy for people to learn because it follows all, the, it has simple rules that you can just keep following. I think that um, when it comes to uh, the question of natural language processing, different from natural language understanding, and I should say that in Wolfram Alpha, for example, the big focus is on small snippets of text. It's like, I say, you know, what's the population of Spain divided by slash all of Europe plus Turkey or something? You know, what is that? Can I untangle what that means? It's sloppily written, but a human could untangle what it means, and we can untangle what it means. And that's the focus of Wolfram language, natural language understanding. It's a very useful kind of natural language understanding. Another thing would be to say, here's this big essay, do something with it. So we also have capabilities to doing, for doing natural language processing, rather good ones actually now, um, where you can do things like say, pick out all the place names in this piece of text. Now there's another level of that, which is make a parse tree for this piece of text. You know, figure out where are the noun phrases, verb phrases, all this kind of thing. Um, we put in capabilities to do that in Wolfram language. They're amusing. They're interesting to school kids. From a production point of view, I don't think anybody cares, um, except in a few very rare cases. So this idea of parsing sentences and that that's the way you sort of crack natural language, I don't think that's, and, and that you do it by this representation, this kind of hierarchical representation, that's the kind of standard uh, sort of representation of natural language. I don't think that has become, that has been an important thing. Um, I think that uh, the kind of natural language that is useful for sort of telling a computer something tends to be much messier than that. It tends to not be grammatical in this nice hierarchical phrases type of way. Um, and uh, it, it tends to be something where the, a parser that was just, I'm looking for perfect English would just get completely confused. Um, and I think this, the sort of the perfect English is the, the, when you have a long block of text, there's sort of a question, could we ever turn a long block of text into a pure symbolic language? The answer is, to some extent, yes. We could imagine taking it, but you have to understand the intent. If there's a big block of text and it's like, pull the fact, pull facts out of this and uh, sort of represent those facts in symbolic language so you can add them to a knowledge base, that's something I can imagine doing. And we've done a certain amount of that. Not, uh, it's not as well developed as it might be because it's messier than you might expect. Um, uh, but I think that's, um, uh, you know, if you ask the question, if you are thinking about natural language and you're asking the question, is there a way to think about representing natural language that's different from the kind of parse tree approach? Um, I think there might be actually. Uh, what it exactly will be useful for, I'm not sure. I think that there were actually earlier approaches before the whole Chomsky phrase, uh, you know, generative grammar kind of approach. There were approaches that are actually more similar to kinds of things that mathematically come from category theory that uh, were previous approaches to kind of the construction, the, the algorithmic construction of, um, of sentences. And maybe some of those can come back and they're, they're just of a different kind. And they actually plug in quite a bit to some things called multi-way systems that we've studied a lot in our physics project. And uh, there, there's, a, there's a potential mathematical story there. I think it will be a big mistake to think we're gonna mathematicize the understanding of natural language. Natural language 
is not the kind of thing that can be mathematicized using traditional mathematical methods. It's, it's a kind of thing that is a different type. It's like saying, what is the, uh, you know, the mathematical shape of an elephant? It's not something where traditional sort of a mathematical formula kind of approach is likely to work. So, but I think there's, uh, there's more to say about this. And in fact, I just yesterday was thinking about um, uh, the application of some of the things we've done in our physics project to linguistics and knowledge representation, um, kind of an unexpected use. Uh, one of the things that um, has come out is a very deep connection between the, the underlying foundations of physics and of mathematics. And it's a, uh, a the sort of underlying representation right down at the sort of lowest abstract level turns out to be the same between those two different, very different areas. And so I'm starting to think, well, where else might this apply? And I kind of think there might be some ways of applying it in linguistics, um, but that's a, a coming attraction about which I, I have almost nothing to say because it's just a, it's a project that I've been, uh, it relates to some other projects I've been interested in for a long time, but it's just starting. It's not something that uh, I yet have things to say about. All right, well, lots of interesting questions that um, I'm afraid we'll have to save up for next time. But thank you for asking lots of interesting things. And um, uh, it's um, very helpful to me to try and explain myself in this way. Um, it helps me understand things better. So thank you for providing that opportunity. And uh, I think I need to go to the meeting that I've been avoiding now. So bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.